Today, open in your Bibles, please, to the book of John, chapter 20. I want to preach on this this entire chapter, but the way I'm going to preach on it today is simply to walk through the chapter with you during this sermon. So I'll be reading the chapter during the sermon, not before. Let us now begin with a word of prayer. John chapter 20. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that this passage of Scripture will be revealed to us so that what John intended will bear fruit in our hearts and minds. We pray you'll fixate our focus upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. It was earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, that John the Baptist made a very famous statement concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. What John the Baptist meant by saying this was that his mission was coming to an end, and Jesus' mission, Jesus' purpose, is the main event of history. And so John the Baptist, his role in, in, the, in the work is now diminishing and he must decrease. This mindset of John the Baptist was followed by the apostles, especially those who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The mindset is this, decreasing themselves and increasing the Lord Jesus Christ in their gospel account. <coughs> One way, or a couple ways, in which these authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John decreased themselves is they wrote about their own ignorance. They wrote about their own lack of faith. They wrote about their own cowardness whenever Jesus Christ was arrested and they were even shocked and amazed at His bodily resurrection. I want you to think about something. Think about how long... These gospel accounts are. When you study them, they're long. It took each of these men a long time to write these gospel accounts of Jesus. And yet, they never ever, these authors never present themselves in any heroic fashion whatsoever. They decrease themselves. All of these disciples, they are focusing on Jesus Christ, and they want the reader, they want you to see Jesus Christ as the one hero, the one man who willfully suffers death and by himself resurrects himself back up with immortality so that his body will never die again. Today, I want to walk you through John's account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage, John actually wants you to know how surprised he was and all the disciples were by the resurrection of Jesus. What John does in this passage is rather interesting. What he does, he starts to stack up some clues. Or I'll put the word evidence in here. He stacks up some evidence of the resurrection, but he wants you to see that the disciples didn't get the point 
until they saw Jesus face to face. Again, in another way, John is decreasing himself and the others, even as he's focusing on the Lord Jesus. Now, the way I want to work through this passage of Scripture is show you the, the seven different sections of John chapter 20. We're going to work through each each section. And in the first three sections, there are three pieces of evidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to see, first of all, the stone, the cloths, and thirdly, the angels. Let's look at first the first evidence in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now that's John. That's the one who's writing this account. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. This is the first piece of evidence and that is this. She simply notices that the stone has been removed. It's important to notice this as well. She does not go into the tomb to investigate. Not yet. That's later. All she sees is this door is open, so to speak. She sees the stone's removed and she's shocked. She makes the conclusion, the false conclusion, the assumption that somebody has stolen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she goes and makes that announcement to the apostles. Her first gospel is a false gospel. Now, this is done in ignorance, but it's not the truth. And it's rather ironic that her message to Peter and John is the same message that the chief priests will pay the soldiers to say. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, there were soldiers who were guarding the tomb and the tomb was sealed up and the angels come down, bust the tomb open and the soldiers go back and repeat everything that they experienced to the chief priest and the chief priest paid these soldiers money and said, listen, go spread the word that somebody stole his body. And that's what the soldiers did. They were paid money to preach a false gospel that somebody stole the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's rather ironic that here Mary Magdalene, in her surprise and in her ignorance, she comes and tells Simon, Peter, and John the same message, that somebody stole the body. But what I'm pointing out today right now is simply there's this first piece of evidence that the stone has been removed. Then as John moves into the next section, the second section, there's a second piece of evidence about the resurrection, and that is the cloths that wrapped the dead body of Jesus. Let me read verse 3 to verse 10. It says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, 
which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The Scripture mentions about the importance of two or three witnesses on various occasions. And here we have more witnesses of this evidence. Not only is it Mary, but it's also Peter and it's also John. The way John writes this, he's giving details of the event. He wants you to know that firsthand he was there. He wants you to know that that Peter was running, but John was probably younger. And so he outran Peter all the way to the tomb and he stops at the door at the, where the stone was rolled away. But Peter goes in, finally, and Peter's the one who sees the cloths lying there. You know, you think about this. If, it makes you wonder, putting all these clues together, if somebody would have stolen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Peter's deducing here that maybe they would have unwrapped the cloths and put them there and took the body somewhere else. That's what it seems to imply here as to why the body is gone. Where is it? So, putting all this together, we see the disciples are still scratching their heads. They have some faith that something has happened. They believe something has happened, but they're going back home, rather scratching their heads, not fully informed of what has happened. Then we have a third piece of evidence, and this is where Mary Magdalene looks in and sees messengers from heaven. Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Notice this. Even though there's the cloths lying there without the body of Jesus, even though John and Peter have observed all this and they go back home wondering what's going on, she still believes and thinks and deduces at this time that they've stolen the body of the Lord Jesus. These are angels giving this message. There's, there's clues from earth. That is, you can say, the grave cloths. There's the stone. And then there's clues from heaven. These angels come down, sitting at the head and the feet, symbolizing the Ark of the Covenant, the holy place, speaking to Mary Magdalene. But even in the face of all of this evidence, she doesn't conclude at this moment that He has been resurrected from the dead. John is building up this plot. He's building up this theme so that he, under, he understands that you as the reader find when is it that Mary truly understood that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The answer is this. It's in the fourth section. It's when Jesus calls Mary by name. That's when she will recognize Jesus. Look at verse 14 and following. Having said this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing. 
But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said all these things to her. Notice that whenever Jesus calls Mary by name, that's when it's like her eyes are open and she realizes this is Jesus Christ whom I'm talking to. This reminds me of John chapter 10, where Jesus Christ said, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. And you can apply this to yourself as well. You Christian, hear the voice of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and Jesus calls you by name. Jesus owns you. Jesus baptizes you. Jesus puts his name upon you. And the reason why you believe in the resurrection of the dead is because the Holy Spirit has come and Jesus Christ has called you by name. Just like you have here, Jesus calling Mary by name. You'll notice the emphasis also of family language. Whenever Jesus is speaking to Mary, he says, I'm going to ascend to my father and go and tell my brothers. And then he says, I'm ascending to my father and your father. There's a resurrection family going on here. There are people who are identified with a new humanity. The old humanity was Adam. Adam died. He was the first gardener in the Garden of Eden. He brought death, sickness, and misery to the world. That's why here, John wants you to pick up on the new gardener. The new gardener is Jesus Christ, the new Adam, the new family of God. This is new covenant language that he has given to his disciples. And Mary is going to be now the messenger of a true gospel. Not the false gospel of they stole his body, but the true gospel that he's been risen from the dead. Now at this point, what John is going to do, he's going to decrease the disciples even more. Because he wants you to see that there are some barriers in their life. He wants you to see, just like there was a barrier of the door of the tomb that Jesus Christ busted open, there are two more barriers later in this, in this chapter that Jesus is going to get through to get to the disciples. And the barrier here is concerning the locked doors. On two occasions, there's a locked door that Jesus goes through or he appears behind. And it's, it's the next two sections. Look at verse 19. This is the room of frightened disciples. In verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, this is the same day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors were locked. 
where the disciples were in fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let me point out, first of all, that the doors were locked. And inside this room, you have a group of frightened disciples. Why? They're fearful of the Jews. The Jews had just killed the Lord Jesus Christ a few days earlier. The disciples are scared to death that they're going to be killed as well. I want you to notice the comparison between the tomb and this room. The tomb was a room of death. The body of the Lord Jesus was there. And the tomb had a door. The door was a stone. And it was sealed. They actually went to seal that, that tomb that, with the stone and lock it in place. And they had guards positioned there just to make sure nobody came to steal that body and, and all that. So you have this comparison that John is doing in this chapter. He wants you to see the comparison. Jesus breaks through that door of the stone, the, the, the room of the tomb of death. He breaks through and busts out. Well, He is going to come into this room of frightened disciples. And He's going to show them they have nothing to fear. Not even the fear of death. And notice the language that Jesus Christ gives them in verse 22 and 23. He gives them the Holy Spirit and He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is not speaking about the power of a person, but the power of the gospel. All a preacher does, or supposed to do, is declare what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, if you repent of your sins, you are forgiven. The Scripture says if you do not repent of your sins, you are unforgiven and God will hold you accountable and there's hell to pay. That's what the Scripture does. That's what the church does. It just simply declares the Word of God. And what Jesus Christ is giving them in the midst of this room, He gives them what's called the keys to the kingdom. He gives them the declaration power of the Word of God. To go out into the world and declare that when you have repented of your sins and have faith in Jesus Christ, you are totally forgiven. In other words, what you see is He has busted open the doors of death. He has paid for sin. It's all forgiven when people come to Jesus Christ. Unlock the door, in other words. And here Jesus Christ is here in the room. He comes in through the door, even though the door is locked. A room filled, filled with frightened disciples. The next room is a room of a doubtful disciple. And you'll notice what John does. These doors are locked as well. Look at verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and put and place my finger in the mark of the nails 
and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This is the second room where the door is locked. First we had the frightened disciples. Now we have a a doubtful disciple named Thomas. Famously known as Doubting Thomas. Jesus Christ breaks through this door. Breaks through this door of doubt, you can say. And appears. Appears right there in the room. And Thomas is having faith in Jesus. Notice what I said earlier about how John writes in a way that diminishes the disciples and increases Jesus Christ. The disciples are fearful. The disciples are doubtful. But when Jesus shows up, he increases their faith. And all the readers point out here is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory. Why does John write this way? Why does he write this way in which he decreases himself and this experience of the disciples. One answer is this. It's because all these disciples believed because of what they saw. Did you see what Jesus said in verse 29? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John is writing to you. You have believed in Jesus Christ and you you have not seen anything of a visible evidence. You weren't there. John's writing for generations and millenniums to come. He wants the rest of the world to not be like these disciples. These disciples were living by sight and their sight brought about their faith. John wants you to simply read the word And believe it. And that's why John's seventh section is so important. It's a very small verse, or two verses. He look at verse 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is putting a major contrast between the experience of the disciples and your experience. He knows that the Holy Spirit will come and give you the faith to know and see the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He knows that you're not in the room with all the disciples and seeing this. So therefore, he diminishes the disciples and simply points to Jesus Christ. Now I'll pose a question and suggest an answer to suggest an answer for you based upon this passage. Why was it so hard for these disciples to believe in Jesus' resurrection? Think about it. Jesus had already raised the dead before. There was a little girl that he raised from the dead. Uh, There was Lazarus who came from the tomb. 
Jesus Christ calmed the, the weather on the sea, told the storm to stand still. Jesus, all the miracles Jesus Christ did of feeding the 5,000, the 4,000, the healing of the man, all this math adds up to surely he's going to raise from the dead. And Jesus predicted, he said, I will die, and three days later, I will raise from the dead. So the question I want to pose to you and help answer for you is why? Why were these disciples so stubborn? So hard-headed and couldn't see it. One dimension you can say, well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit at the time or the full dose of the Holy Spirit. But on a human level, why was it so hard to accept it? Let me say this. It had to do with how brutal and how devastating his death was. Jesus' body was butchered. Nailed to the cross and before it was nailed, beaten to a pulp, all the thorns on the brow, and then the spirit that goes into his side, all the blood, all the water pouring out of his body. Jesus Christ was basically butchered to death. And he was humiliated. He was nailed on a cross up there naked before the whole watching world, mocked before all the world. It was completely humiliating for these disciples. It was a devastating blow to his followers. Probably shame. Probably wondering how do we get caught up into this? And they thought, this was so devastating, this is beyond a resurrection. This is beyond redemption. That's why it was so bad. And that's why it was hard for them to accept the resurrection at first. But it shows you this. No matter how devastating of a death it is, no matter how brutal a Christian may suffer something or whatever it may be, God is always able to resurrect new life from that hell of experience. And Jesus Christ literally went through hell. I don't mean emotional or temporal, but he suffered hell. God the Father poured out hell on Jesus Christ, punished him for our sins so that he will not punish you with hell. It's a perfect substitute. So all of that adds up as to why these disciples, it was hard for them to fully accept at the very beginning the historical reality of the resurrection. John is writing in such a way that his, that your focus is not on him, it's not on Thomas, it's not on Peter or any of his followers. He's simply pointing to Jesus saying, we must decrease and he must increase. He's our Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his conquest of death and his redemption of the world. We give you thanks, Lord, that you have engrafted us into his eternal body, his glorious church. And you've given us the promises of the resurrection so that even our bodies will rise from the dead when Jesus Christ returns. We give you thanks over the victory of the grave. In his name we pray. Amen.